We normally preach through books of the Bible here at Poplar Spring, but for the next few weeks, um, we're going to focus on this idea of, of stewardship and being entrusted by God with some very specific things. Now, you may hear that, that word stewardship and it uh, automatically think, uh-oh, here we go, here comes the money sermon. Matt's going to tell us that we don't give enough and we need to give more. And, uh, and there will be a focus on our, our treasures, uh, on our, our material possessions, and certainly our money is part of that. But this series is broader, broader than that. This, uh, this series over the next three weeks, we're going to look at what God has entrusted us with, our time, talent, and treasures. Um, and the question each week will be this, how are, we, how are we spending, how are we leveraging what we've been entrusted with by God for His glory? Um, how are we spending our lives? And this morning, I want to introduce us to this idea of stewardship or being entrusted by God with specific things. And my aim this morning is to give us a bit of an overview or an introduction to this, this series that we're going to be in to demonstrate to you from God's word that this idea is biblical and that as believers, we've been called, we've been uh, given and entrusted with certain things and those things are to be spent, leveraged for God's glory. That's a biblical idea for believers, for Christians. And uh, God's word gives us some clear instruction concerning what he, by his grace, has given us and how we're to steward those things, give away those things. Um, And so if you would, open with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, we'll read verses 14 through 30. But as you open, I want to give you a bit of background since we've not been studying through the book of Matthew. Um, We're going to see a parable this morning, and, and we're really studying a section of Matthew's gospel this morning where Jesus has been explaining what life will be like in the kingdom of God. Um, essentially, Jesus is teaching his, his followers, the disciples, that, uh, that they are to live life in the last days um, in a certain way. And Jesus knows that his, his arrest, his trial, his death, uh, his resurrection, and his ascension are, are coming soon. And because of that, Jesus has, um, has, has, has understood and is teaching his disciples that life is about to change drastically for them. For his followers, that if they really believe, if they genuinely believe that Jesus is the king, that he's the Messiah, then everything's about to be shaken up for them when he ascends to go be with the Father, right? Like it's it's one thing to follow Jesus when he's walking the earth with you, but what about when he's gone? What about when he ascends and goes back to to be with the Father? What then? And so Jesus spends a great deal of time in the middle of Matthew's gospel teaching them what life should be like in these last days. And, uh, and that period is a, is a broad period of time, meaning between his ascension and his second coming. We're still living in those last days. Um, and so you can imagine, as Jesus has been teaching this, this idea, and he's, he's done it numerous times, Jesus tells you he's going to die, he's going to rise again, and he's going to ascend to heaven, but that he's going to come back for you one day. I mean, the, the immediate question, at least in my mind, I would imagine, the next question is, well, when is that going to be, Jesus? Right? Like if you're telling me you're leaving, but you're going to come back, when are you leaving and when are you coming back? I want, I want to know some, some details here. And so Jesus uses a parable to teach them that no one knows. And really, that's, that's not even the point, uh, that, that, that it's not for you to know. But the point is, and, and he, again, he taught this in a parable, the point is that you should be prepared for when he comes. You should be waiting. You should be expecting. You should be prepared for his return. And he teaches them that truth with the parable of the, the ten virgins immediately before the parable that we're in this morning. And so that's just what uh, came before our text this morning. And so you can imagine if Jesus just taught that, be prepared, that's what it looks like for you in this in-between time, uh, that you would be waiting, that you would be prepared. Well, the next question, at least in my mind, would be, well, what does it look like to be prepared? 
What, what do you mean, Jesus, be prepared? What should we be, what should we be doing uh, in that time as we wait on you? Should we go and, and get some rations together and, and maybe go with other believers up on a mountain and just kind of hang out there? Is it going to be like, you know, a, a time for us just to, to be separated from the world and wait for you to come back? And just, no, what I mean when I say be prepared is that you should be busy doing certain things. You should be busy doing something. And that's what he lays out for us in the parable this morning. That's precisely what the parable's about this morning and precisely what our sermon series will be about these next three weeks. And so uh, I hope you're in Matthew 25 by now. If you're not, you should have used the table of contents. Uh, Let's start in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. And he who had received five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had made the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, and so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours." But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word and we need to hear from you. And so I humbly ask that you would speak this morning, that you would remove me and set me out of the way, that your word would be clear. I confess that I'm dependent upon you, Spirit. And so use this word in each of our hearts. We thank you for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before we dive into the meaning of this text and how it should shape our understanding, how it should shape our lives, there's a few things that we need to understand. The word talent here in the text is not meaning the same thing that you would think if I were to say, man, she was really talented at softball. Or, or he was a, a really talented painter. Uh, now, now, true, the Lord gives us talents like that. He does give us abilities and aptitudes for certain things. And Michael's going to show us next week what that looks like to, to honor the Lord with the, the talents like that that he gives us. 
But that's not the word Jesus is using here. In the Greek, in the language that this was written, it would have been simply a unit of measurement. Right? And so if we're talking about money, a talent might have been a talent of silver or gold or copper, uh, that sort of thing. But he's, he's not talking about an aptitude or an ability to perform well at any given task. And so when Jesus' hearers heard him teaching, they wouldn't have thought, oh, yeah, my, my talents, I, I'm a great uh, carpenter, or my talents, uh, I, can, I can do um, you know, certain things well. They would have understood that he was talking about a unit of measurement. And so... Um, what did Jesus mean here? That, that's what we must get at. Well, by talent, what, what did Jesus mean? And he's, he's referring in the text to a measured responsibility or opportunity that God puts into your life as a disciple. I'm repeat that because that's important for the rest of our understanding of this parable. When Jesus says talent here, he's talking about a measured responsibility or opportunity that God puts into your life as a disciple. And so as you wait on Jesus to return, as you're living in the last days, Jesus would say to his disciples and to us today through his word, you have responsibilities and opportunities that I've given you and use them for my glory. And we're not talking about just churchy stuff here. Like I think oftentimes when we talk about that sort of thing, we think, yeah, I have musical ability, so I'll come up and help with Michael on stage and leading worship. Or I have leadership uh, ability, so I'll, you know, I'll lead out in a certain ministry or missions effort. Or I have teaching abilities, and so maybe I'll teach a Sunday school class or growth group. I'm not talking about churchy stuff. Those things are right and good, but this is everything. This is the job that you work every day. This is the, the money that he's given you, entrusted you with. This is your time, uh, that if you're alive at this moment you have time that's one thing you have Uh, this is your home your business uh, your family your kids your spouse the the things that God has stewarded and given to you it's your opportunity it's your responsibility in every sphere of life and so I want to give you the main idea of the text it should be the main idea of the sermon Um, it's this that as you wait on Jesus you've been entrusted with much And so spend it for his glory with faithfulness, energy, and love for your king. I'm going to say that again. As you wait on Jesus, you've been entrusted with much. And so spend it for his glory with faithfulness, energy, and love for your king. I'm going to give you a roadmap where we're headed in our our sermon today. We're going to walk through the text uh, and make a few observations. uh, And then in the, the, the larger part of our time together this morning, I want to give you six Points of application, six truths that we draw from this text and what it means with this, this idea that we've been entrusted with much. God has given us much in terms of responsibilities and opportunities, and we're to leverage those for his glory. And so we'll, get, we'll walk through six points of application. So let's walk through the parable. It's not a hard story to understand. Uh, you got it, I'm certain, when we were reading it, the point, the, the main takeaway. The master goes away. He calls three of his servants forward uh, with this task. He gives them talents. Uh, in this case, it's money. That's clear from the text. Uh, it could have been gold. It could have been copper. But most likely in this day, it would have been silver. Now, there's a lot of debate among scholars and in, in, in commentaries about how much money this was. It could have been a, a whole bunch. It could have been not, so, not as much as a whole bunch, but a lot. Uh, that's not the point. Even, even in those debates and in those scholarly articles, that's not the point. They even recognize that. But this would have been a good bit. And one of the things that I kept seeing come up in, in studying through this text is that um, it's at least a yearly, a yearly salary, a yearly wage of money. And so, uh, again, for the sake of our understanding and applying this text to our lives, 
Uh, I'm going to go with that this morning, not saying that's absolutely the case, but it's a, it's a considerable amount of money, and so we're going to say $40,000. 40000 would have been in a, a talent. And so to the, to the one, he gave five talents. That's equal to $200,000, roughly. And so you're, you're, you're understanding that this is a good amount of money, not like a trillion dollars, not like an unimaginable amount of money, but by anyone's standards, this is a lot. I mean, he's giving them, giving them a, lot of, a lot of money, and it's to be invested. It's to be furthered for when he returns home. Again, the point is not how much each person received. Uh, what's important is that there was significant responsibility that was given to each one, significant opportunity that was given to each one. He's not just saying, hey, come by and water my cows for me a couple times while I'm gone, or hey, come by and, and, and mow my yard for me while I'm gone. He's giving them significant responsibility in his absence. That's the point of the parable, because, uh, and that's the point Jesus is making. We need to understand that because he's teaching his disciples, when I go, when I ascend to be with the Father, I'm giving you significant op- opportunities and responsibilities during my absence, physically, from you. So the master goes away. He says he returns home after quite a while. It's been a long trip, been a long journey. He comes home, and each of the servants come, and, and they give a, a report to him as to how they invested the master's money. And the last guy comes forward and he says, I didn't invest your money, I just hid it in the ground. I just dug a hole and hid it. Why is that? Why why did he he say that? Why did he do that? He says, because I knew you were a hard man. I knew you were a hard man. And the master responds to him, responds to this statement. And this is where a lot of people get tripped up in this parable, in this text. Because it seems like at face value what the master is saying is, is, yes, I'm agreeing with you. I'm a hard man. I do reap where I haven't sown, which almost sounds dishonest, dishonest or, or, or like stealing or something. And that's incredibly problematic because in this parable, the master is Jesus. Um, and Jesus is certainly not self-identifying as a hard man, as a, as a thief uh, or, or a hard taskmaster in that way. But I don't think that's what the master in the parable is saying. I don't think it's a straightforward, yes, you, my reputation is correct. You've heard correctly, I am a hard man. I do do those things. I think the master's using a, a level of sarcasm here. Almost like, oh, really? You've heard that I'm a hard man. You, you've heard that I, I operate in this way, and you still did not at least go and invest with a bank? Like, that's foolishness, even, even more so, that you would hear that and still not go and invest in, in a wise way. So the master takes the talent from him, and he gives it to the better steward. And then at the end of this parable... You have a proclamation of judgment. Cast this guy into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus does this sort of thing often with the parables. This is something he does numerous times. He sort of, in the middle of this parable, zooms out at the end of it. And and whatever he's teaching on at any given time, he he, he ends up at judgment. This is what judgment's going to look like before God. Um, Each time he does it, the point is the same. Jesus is teaching us in the midst of his teaching that if you don't have Jesus, you have no hope. You have nothing. And so in the midst of whatever he's teaching you about being a disciple, let me, let me make this resoundingly clear. If you don't have me, you have nothing. You have no hope. And so that's the parable. And so what's the point? Jesus tells his followers this to demonstrate what they should be doing, how they should be investing, stewarding their lives, what they've been entrusted with during the time while he's away. Um, and that the fruit of their responsibilities, the fruit from those opportunities, will show them to either be a true and a, and a faithful servant, or their fruit from that opportunity will show them to be a, a slothful, wicked servant, which is really no servant at all. 
Their fruit from those opportunities will demonstrate which side of this thing they're on. So, there's the parable. I'm going to walk through now six truths we see, six points of application for us as we start this series called Entrusted. Um, and, and we'll see them fleshed out each week with more specific detail as it relates to certain things. This is sort of big picture, umbrella. Uh, number one, we need to realize that whatever we do, we work for the king. You need to realize that whatever you do, you work for the king. Each of these servants realized that there would be a payday someday, right? That, 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 that they would settle accounts with their master, that that day was coming, and they would settle the, their accounts. And the parable doesn't tell us what each of the good servants did with their talent. That's not the point. It doesn't tell us, like, maybe one of them went and, and started a carpentry business and made things uh, and, and sold them. Maybe one of them bought a fishing boat and, and went and started a fishing business. Either way, whatever they, they did, whatever they chose to do with their talent, they, they invested in a way that brought them to engage other people, right? In the, in the buying and selling and producing profit, investing money, selling things, making a product, uh, selling things to make a profit. But here's the thing. Regardless of what they did, and regardless of how many people they came into contact with while they were doing it, while they were working for their master, they realized that they worked for their master, that it was his money, that they were his servants, and ultimately they were going to have to give him an account. It wasn't those other people that they were working for, or even themselves that they were working for. When it comes to our lives, we, we must realize this truth, that our employments, that our responsibilities, that our tasks, our, our opportunities, our duties are unto the Lord. I think, I think most people, and even Christians, fall into one of two problems here. One, uh, we, make, uh, we tend, to, tend to make those things an, an, an idol, I-D-O-L, um, out of our job, out of our task, out of our responsibility. Or two, we tend to become idle, <laughs> I-D-L-E, um, when it comes to our responsibilities, tasks, or opportunities. When we make it an idol, we, we, we concentrate on it, on it to the point that it's the main source of satisfaction and comfort and, and preoccupation instead of Jesus. It becomes an idol for us. Or we become idle, and it's not so much that we just stop doing stuff like idle hands um, or, or like a chronic state of couch potato-ness. Um, idle hands. It, the bigger problem when we become idle is an idleness of the heart. That, that, that we, we continue to, to do things, we continue to do stuff, but we lose the purpose behind the doing, right? Like we continue to do things, but, but we lose the purpose, and we just sort of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we get it done. We just drudge through it. We go, we go through the motions and get the things done, but we forget that it's for our master. And so whatever job you have right now, what, it's ultimately not for your boss. It's not for your clients. It's not for your employees or even for your own family. It's for your master. It's for the king. Whatever time you have, whatever uh, treasure or, or material possessions you have, it's for the master. It's been entrusted to you, and we need to realize this truth, that, that the king has given you time, talent, and treasure, and you work for the king. Second point of application this morning from this parable. All responsibilities and opportunities are God's to give, and he gives them unequally. I want to say that again because it... It may strike some of you uh, offensively, but, it, but it's true. All responsibilities and opportunities are God's to give, and he gives them unequally. 
If you compare verses 1, 2, and 5, if you're looking at the text with me, when you compare those three verses, 1, 2, and 5, you'll see that the master gives different amounts of, of money to the different servants, right? And going with just the, the for the sake of uh, you know, us in this morning, understanding the text, comparing it to our economy, according to the standard we set forth, you're saying $200,000 to one, $80,000 to another, and $40,000 to the third uh, by today's standards. And when we hear that in the story that the master gave unequal amounts, our antenna goes up, right? Our, our fairness radar is being alerted, right? In America especially. We, 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 want, we want things to be fair. Our gut reaction is that, hey, this would have been fair if, if, and right and good if the master would have given the money equally. That he would have given them the same amount to see what they could do with it, right? Giving them the same opportunity. But Jesus doesn't operate with those same preconceived ideas that we would maybe have in the text. In fact, Jesus over and over demonstrates the opposite, right? You think chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, the, the parable of the workers. It's the same. It's the case that, 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 in, that in that chapter 20, it's with wages and rewards. But the point is the same. The master's in control of those. He's in control of the rewards and wages. And here it's with responsibilities. And the master's still in charge of those. They're God's to give, and he gives them as he wishes. I mean, this is no different from Paul in the New Testament, uh, where Paul would, would describe gifts within the church. Some, has, you know, some have the ability to do this. Some are given this gift to serve in this way. Others perform this ministry or this office or duty within the church. And it's all okay. You don't have the same gift or calling, and that's okay. In fact, it's not only okay, it's precisely the way that God designed it. And so for us as believers this morning, how are we thinking about our opportunities and responsibilities, our possessions that God has given us? Or maybe to maybe hit a little closer to home, how are you thinking about the opportunities, possessions, responsibilities that God has given your brother or sister in Christ? Do we ever find ourselves maybe jealous that we don't have that role or that task or that duty or find ourselves wishing that we had their circumstances find ourselves wishing that we had their station in life or their blessings or find ourselves coveting something that they have. Listen, God bestows, he gives, and so we serve the master where we are and with what we have because it's from him. Abraham Kuyper has this really great quote. You may have heard it before. He says this, that there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's huge for us to understand. It's all his, and he gives it. He gives it and gives it to us to steward and to be entrusted with. But I love the way that Greg Gilbert, Greg Gilbert takes that quote, and he kind of puts a spin on it, and I think it's also just as true and good. He says there's not one second of life over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So wherever you're at in life, wherever you're at with, with possessions, wherever you're at with your job, your responsibilities, your family, God has given them to you. He's given them to you to steward. And so give them to him. Give glory to him through them. Number three, responsibilities from the master normally match up with our abilities. Responsibilities from the master normally match up with our abilities. Look at verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. 
Now, the master in the parable, he knows them. He's watched them serve him. He, he knows their abilities. He knows their talents. He knows their capacities. And he's given them responsibilities that reflect that. Now, notice in the point, I emphasize the word normally. The Lord normally gives us abilities uh, or responsibilities that are uh, commensurate with our abilities. Now, we can certainly think of times in the Bible and in our own lives where that's not the case, right? You think of little David and huge Goliath. You think of, of Moses, who had a, a speech impediment, going to be the mouthpiece from God to a people. Um, there are certainly examples where we can say God did something extraordinary, and he gave somebody the responsibility and the task to do something that they had no ability or power to do. We can certainly find opportunities like that in our lives and in the text of Scripture. But what seems to be the clearer pattern in Scripture is that God entrusts responsibilities and tasks with his followers in ways that naturally fit them. Why? Because he created them. Not just the responsibilities and tasks, he created the person with the abilities. <laughs> and he, he weds them together in ways that are, that are perfect. I mean, you think of Paul here, right? It wasn't Paul's plan when he received his education to go in and, and be the, the, the type of minister that he was. His huge level of training uniquely equipped him, though, to write half the New Testament. I mean, his, his skill and ability and giftedness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, gave him the, the, the opportunity to write with incredible precision and accuracy the fine details of theology that we still study to this day, thousands of years later. And too often as Christians, I think we get this backwards. We, we have this expectation, like, God used me to do big things, like like supernatural huge things that are obvious, like slaying a giant or going to Nineveh. And when that doesn't happen, we kind of throw our hands up and we're like, well, God can't, he won't, he didn't use me. When maybe all along what God is saying is, is, is I, I want to give you the abilities to serve me in the ways that I want to give you the abilities to serve me. All along, God's doing something in and through you as his servant. He's giving you the ability to do and, and do well. So don't get bitter that, that you weren't given the, the $200,000 talent to manage. Manage the 40000 well and good for his glory and vice versa. There's a catchy phrase that we often use, and I've said it myself, and before I tell you what it is, I want you to know that I don't hate the phrase. I like it. I think there's truth here in this, this phrase that we use all the time. Um, but I think we need to clarify something when we use it. And here's the phrase. Uh, you've heard it, I'm certain. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. You've heard that before, right? If you've been in church any amount of time. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And I I'm like, yeah, there's truth there. I believe that's true. I believe that's true. But so often, we need to clarify this, that Christians are sort of just sitting around waiting on this mystical, emotion-filled call, right? Just sitting around waiting on this special call to do something huge and something big when all along God's saying, I've given you the ability to be a phenomenal bank teller. Go and use that for my glory tomorrow when you go to work. I've not made you rich, but I've given you a $35,000 a year salary. Go and steward those monies for my glory. You say you're busy all the time, but I've given you a 24-hour day just like everybody else. Go and steward that time for my glory. And so often we wait for that big mystical calling when all along God's called you to do the very thing he made you good at. Go do it for his glory with great joy. Number four. What matters is obedient, energetic service to the master, not the size of the return. What matters is obedient, energetic service to the master and not the size of the return. Now, we're going to try an experiment here. This is dangerous, I know, because it, 
It, it involves, it requires some crowd participation. But I want to ask you to step out on a limb and help me with it this morning. Everybody has their Bible open, I hope. If it's not, you need to get it there quick. Uh, here's what we want to do. On the left side of the room, so that's everybody over here. When I give you the word, when I tell you, I want you to read aloud verse 21. All right? Everybody on the right side of the room, when I tell you, I want you to read aloud at the same time as this side of the room, verse 23. All right? So verse 21, verse 23. It may be crazy pandemonium, but we're going to try it on the mark. Get set. Go. Did you hear it? Did, did you? Yeah, somebody said, it's the exact same thing. It's word for word the same. It doesn't matter that the first gentleman made his master three years worth of more income, by the standards that we've set this morning, $120,000 more for his master. It's word for word the same. The king's response, his, his commendation, his, his reward, his praise, the gift and reward that he gives them for faithful service, it's exactly the same. And here's the other truth. Even with the third guy, if you look at verse 27, there seems to be this implication that the king would have been pleased even if this third guy would have invested in a bank and brought just a little bit of interest back. Just some return. Just some, some benefit from this investment. The, the point here is that the master wanted these servants to put his money to work. He, he wanted them to work energetically and faithfully with what he gave them to work with. To go and serve him with faithfulness in the responsibility that they were given. He desired faithfulness. He desired service. So I think the question for us this morning is, are we doing that? Are we giving unto the Lord faithfully and energetically in all spheres of our lives? Are we offering energetic service to Jesus because we love him? It's not the size of the return, but energetic, faithful service to our king. Number five. Joy in our responsibilities come through love for our king. Joy in our responsibilities comes through love for our king. You see in this text here that it's not just an employee-employer relationship. There's not just this concern here with the bottom line that the master comes back and it's about profit margins and have you given to me what I expect you to give to me. The master returns, and the text says that the first two servants run up, and their response is the same. Master, look, here's what I've made you. Here's what I've, here's what I've done while you've been gone. I mean, there's this joy in their hearts as they share with their master. Here's, here's what the, the fruit of it has been. And then in, in the result, the master, he invites them in response to sharing his joy. Enter into the joy of your master. There's this love and joy that's exchanged in the text that's far greater than just capitalism or or free enterprise. There's a a relationship here. And perhaps this makes more sense in our parable if you look at what happens when you don't know and love the master. Look at verse 24. He who had also received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Why didn't he work faithfully, energetically for the master? Because he had a low view, a low opinion of the master. He didn't know the master. He didn't love the master like the other two did. And his lack of love for the master turned into fear of the master. And ultimately that fear turned into laziness toward the responsibility that the master gave him. You see how that works. He was living in fear. 
And it was a false fear. It was, it was a fear that had no, 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 no reason behind it, nothing to substantiate it. And both are true here. Think about this. Of faithful obedience, energetic service for the master are clues of one's love for the master from these first two servants. But at the same time, on the other hand, a lack of love for the master is experienced or, or evidenced by a laziness. And the ultimate, the ultimate uh, terror in this verse is that the master calls them wicked. Verse 26. So a lack of love for the master ends in you being called wicked and thrown into outer darkness. Love for the master results in you working faithfully, serving the master, and joy in the master's presence. So here's the thing for us as we apply this text this morning and think about our lives, every, every responsibility, opportunity that we have. It's at least possible this morning that our frustration with our season of life, our, our hatred of our responsibilities, our dislike of our job, our boredom with our opportunities is stemming from a lack of love for your king. Could that be the case this morning? Oh, I hate getting up and going to work. I, my kids are terrible. I can't stand being around them. I can't stand the place where we're at financially. I can't stand the, oppor- the, the re- responsibilities that I have on my plate right now, the duties that I have on. Is it, is it possible that you just have a lack of love for your king right now? You say, okay, well, what do I do? You understand that God has given you responsibilities and opportunities and you serve and honor him with them. And here's the result. The greatest joy in all the world is getting to spend your life doing those things for your king who you love. That's where the joy comes from. That's where the satisfaction comes from when you've done those things for him. Because it's all about him anyways. So are you living this morning out of fear or faith? That if I don't do this thing, we may not be able to make bills. Or if I don't do this thing, my kids may end up in jail. Or if I don't do this thing, are you, are you doing those things because you love the one who's given you those opportunities? Number six, and our final point of application this morning. <clears throat> this is a long one, so get your pen ready. Being a follower of the king is about more than just avoiding bad stuff. It's about spending our lives for the king who has redeemed us. Being a follower of the king is about more than just avoiding bad stuff. It's about spending our lives for the king who has redeemed us. The third servant operated under a terrible misunderstanding of the master's expectations. You see it in verse 24. He believed that he would be okay when the king returned if he simply did not squander the king's money, right? If he avoided doing something wrong with the money, if he just buried it and protected it, then he would be okay. At least I won't lose it, and the king will be okay. And so many believers operate right here. Like, this is their world. This is where they live and operate. Just don't do something wrong, right? Just don't mess up and screw something up so bad that it can't be fixed. And and if that's how you're living, if that's how you're believing, then you've entirely missed Jesus' point. That you would just not do bad things, right? Here's the reality. The king... The king left heaven. He left his perfect, glorious home, and he came to earth so that instead of killing rebels, rebels to his kingship, he could die for them in their place. Like, you realize that's the gospel, right? That our king had every right and power to completely annihilate us, each and every one of us, who are rebels to his authority, his kingship, his lordship. But instead of annihilating us, he came and took the punishment for us. He traded places with us, and he was killed in the place of his rebels. 
Right? That's the gospel. But here's the rest of the story. When he saves you, when by grace and by the Spirit's help, he redeems you and you receive pardon, you receive mercy. The point is not that you would just go lock yourself away in some closet so that you can see nothing, hear nothing, feel nothing, so that hopefully you don't mess up anything. Right? Like we, we, we're not a people that do that. The point is that he saved you and he's given you a job. And that job is serve me because there's no other joy or satisfaction in this life like serving me. Not to earn my love, but precisely because you've experienced my love. Not because you're working for my love, serve me, but because I've lavished it upon you, serve me. You see how those are different? They're drastically different. I like basketball. It's March Madness, getting real close. And uh, so I thought this would be fitting. Desmond, we often, often ask Desmond uh, what, what sport he wants to play when he gets older. Like, when you get a little bigger, buddy, what, what do you want to play? And I played uh, basketball and golf and football in school, and so, of course, I would love it if he picked one of those. But for some reason, he keeps saying soccer. I don't get that at all because I've never watched soccer. I don't even know how the game works. And, and we're praying that, that the Lord changes his little heart and that he picks something else. But if he doesn't, let's just, let's just pretend the Lord answers that prayer and he picks basketball for the sake of this illustration. Uh, if Desmond's picking basketball and one day decides to play, have you ever watched little kids play basketball? It's, it's ugly. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, they're dribbling the ball up over their head like this and usually running to the wrong goal. But even if they get the goal right, they run and just fling it down there. And sometimes it doesn't even hit the backboard. I mean, like, it's ugly. It's really ugly. Now, do you think for a second that as his dad, I'm going to be sitting in the bleachers the whole time going, Oh my gosh, this is terrible. This just is awful. This looks awful. He has no clue what he's doing. He's embarrassing me. I wish he'd just quit. Maybe he'll want to quit after this game. I don't have to watch him do this anymore. It's so ugly. It's so terrible. No way. Are you kidding me? As his dad in the stands, I'm going to be over the moon. I'm going to be like, get it, son. Go for it. If you just keep shooting, they'll eventually fall. Like, keep going, son. Keep going. Why? Because I love him and he's my son. I'm his dad. And my love for him is not contingent upon his ability to do it perfectly. Do you get that this morning? Like I hope that's, that, that's speaking some spiritual truth into your life about our relationship with the Father, that his love for you is not contingent upon you doing it perfectly. I want to contrast that image with another one for you. An image of my freshman year in high school. Uh, I was one of two freshmen that made the varsity team, which... Made my head get about this big, and I thought I was big man on campus because I was a freshman and I made varsity. What I didn't understand is that what that really meant is that I was going to be riding the bench a whole lot, like the whole time. Like I never left the bench unless we were 30 points up or 30 points down. And so like every game, that's where I was at on the end of the bench, like the guy that you know he's not going in for a long time. And it was so bad that I had a cheering section in the stands, which was really just my buddies that didn't play and my parents and all of their friends, right? And, uh, and every game when we would get up by 30, they would start, let Matt in, let Matt in. Let... It was terribly embarrassing. One of the most embarrassing things I've ever went through. Picturing that scene, can you imagine my dad being in the bleachers in the stands while I'm riding the bench all game long. I've not stepped on the court, but my dad's up there bragging to his friends whose sons are actually playing. Hey, did y'all see my boy? Y'all see him riding that bench? He's really tearing it up down there on the end of the bench. Hey, you know how many mistakes he's made? How many errors he's made? Zero, none, all game long, zero. How many mistakes has your son made? To the guy who's out there giving it all and playing. 
How foolish would that be? Of course he's not going to be talking trash like that. I never even got in the game. I never touched the court. Here's my point. You are loved by your creator simply because you are his. That if you've been covered by the blood of Christ, if he has shed his blood and you've received salvation in Christ, he's redeemed you, then you could not be more loved than you are at this very moment. Here's the other side of that truth. You can't be any less loved than you are at this moment. Why? Because God's love towards you is not dependent upon, it's not contingent upon your action, what you do. It's contingent upon his son's blood, his son's life. So you can't be any more loved or any less loved than you are at this moment. And so running with this basketball illustration, get in the game. He's called you onto the court and leave it all there. That at the end, when you have finished your race, you can look at your king and say, I gave it to you. I gave it all for you. Everything for you. And it doesn't matter if sometimes you looked ugly doing it or sometimes you messed up doing it. Sometimes you looked foolish doing it. Your king is worth faithful, energetic love and service. And because here's the reality. On one day, we will stand before God and we'll give an account for how we stewarded his generosity. Every sphere of life that he's given us, we'll have to answer for. And on that day, don't be like the third servant. On that day, God, you gave me a family. You gave me a job. You gave me finances. You gave me talents. You gave me abilities. You gave me gifts. God says, okay, well, how did you steward them for my glory? Well, I didn't do anything with them. But look at them. They're perfect. They're, they're unscathed. They're unscratched. They're perfect. Nothing harmed them. They're, they're, they're my perfect little life. No, friends. On that day, stand before the king and say, I gave them all to you because I love you and you're worth it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray this morning that by the power of your word and by your spirit, you would call each one of us to obedience. That God, as you've entrusted much to us, responsibilities and opportunities, duties, gifts, callings, jobs, families, finances, material possessions, God, you've lavished those upon us. God, help us to be a people that give generously in all of those areas. You're worthy, King Jesus. And it's all yours anyways teach us that truth this morning. And God, if there's one here this morning never received pardon, they've never received salvation and forgiveness of sins, God, I pray that today would be a day of salvation. They would see just what King Jesus has done in leaving heaven and dying in their place. And they would come this morning in joy and with gladness in their hearts give you everything. So God, you use this time as we respond to your word, as we sing to you, would you change our hearts? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.